From American Salon Magazine and .com, I'm Gordon Miller, and this is American Salon Stories, our weekly podcast featuring some of the most interesting people we know. So today's a very special podcast, and, and now that I said that, I, they're all special. I have, I have, I'm so fortunate to have the best guests and best friends in the industry. Um, today's guest is one of the most liked and respected professionals that we know. He's an inspiring entrepreneur. He's a master network. He's a, a real success story. He's the owner, along with his wife Belinda, of the Massage Group in Knoxville, Tennessee. More on that in the moment. Welcome to the American Salon Podcast, our good friend Frank Gambuza. Hello, Gordon. Thank you for having me. It's always an honor to uh, have a chance to speak with you and certainly to my peers. Well, again, we're, we're thrilled to have you. I'm, I'm going to do something that I, I haven't done yet on this podcast. I, I kind of avoid it for all kinds of reasons. I'm actually going to read some of your official bio because A, there's so much to say and B, it's, it's really kind of fascinating. You have a, a pretty unique story. So, so here we go. Um, started in 1986 with a three chair salon. The Visage Group today includes Salon Visage, Spa Visage, Studio Visage, Frank's Barbershop, the Visage Advanced Hair Academy, a whole lot more that I don't have time to list. Um, all of this in not so big Knoxville, Tennessee, where you employ more than 170 people. You service over 600 clients every single day. Um, and, and because you're somewhat of an overachiever, I'm guessing, you co-founded Strictly Business, a four-day business seminar for salons, which I've attended and it's like one of the best things out there. Um, you are a board member now of the Summit Salon Business Center, a top consulting and coaching service. And in your spare time, you're president of Interquaf Your America Canada, an association that counts amongst its members, some of the, the best and brightest in the entire industry. And wow, um, all of that started at age 13 um, when you went to work in an old school Italian barbershop um, in New Jersey. So um, I'm, I'm going to ask you to start by a little bit about that and, and kudos on this amazing resume. But um, New Jersey, 13, what the heck? Well, yeah, I mean, when I hear it now, I even say what the heck. But at the time, uh, it was kind of a, a necessary evil, if you would. I, I was bouncing around as a shoeshine boy in the inner city of West New York, New Jersey, a small town, just obviously west of New York, just outside the Lincoln Tunnel. And it, it was an urban area, like I say. And on each corner, the way the, the geographical layout was, is you had taverns pretty much on the corners. You had the Irish, you had the Italians, and everybody hung out in kind of a tavern. And I'd go from tavern to tavern, shining shoes. And uh, my dad really didn't like the idea of me hanging out in taverns, but he did like the idea that I had a work ethic and, and I was willing to hustle, if you would, and, and, and make my own way. But he caught me, he caught me running a scam. I, uh, uh, well, what happened is one, one time the Catholic church, I was an altar boy at the Catholic church and they asked me to sell ham raffles. Uh, so I was selling coupons for a ham raffle and somebody won the ham. So a month later, I'm thinking, boy, I raised more money ham raffling for the church than I did shine and shoes. So maybe, maybe I should run my own ham raffle and, the problem I got into, as I said, it was for the church, and it wasn't. Uh, and my father found out I was making bank, and he he found out I certainly got in some trouble, and he kind of whipped me on the bottom. I was still young, and, and he said, you know, it's bad enough for what you did. He said, but what made me just as mad is that you weren't even smart enough to buy a ham and let somebody win. <laughs> so so uh, he 
got me in the local barbershop as a shoeshine boy to where I'd have a kind of a brick and mortar stationary job where he knew I was supposed to be from what time to what time as opposed to roaming the streets. I, I love that story. And, and I have to give you credit at a young age for finding a great role model. Um, as a, my dad's a Catholic, I, I grew up on the Methodist side of the of the aisle. But but I will say that the, that the Catholic Church is very good at raising money. And so you, you found yourself a good role model at 13 to, to model your ill, ill-gotten deeds around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They do. They raise a lot, and they're pretty good at disciplining you to to, to get things done. So it's a combination of understanding uh, the value of a coin and to realize that you you kind of had to hit the pavement and make it happen. So really, it's two business principles that still apply today, no matter what we do for a living. I love it. We uh, we we started late today because um, again, you have this amazingly successful and large salon organization. I want to have you explain a little bit about that. You're, you're a successful businessman, a really active businessman. You're tra- always on the road. You're traveling for Intercoiffure and, and for your own business interests constantly. And yet I get a text saying, uh, I'm running behind. I got a client with long hair. <laughs> Which, and- yeah, I mean, you know, hey, I, uh, two things. Number one, you know, I, I never for myself, I never want to sort of uh, forget or disrespect or not honor what got us here. And, and, and that is the hairdresser to client relationship, right? So, you know, I never want to get out of the practice. It probably cost me more money to do client's hair than not do hair with as much uh, attention as necessary to the business. But, uh, you know, I, I think the other part of it is if you're going to lead young people as a leader of an organization like Belinda and I are, you know, you can tell them what to do all day long, but, you know, I, I'd rather show them what to do than tell them what to do. And I'd, I'd rather my actions be the role model more than my words. So I do, I still do like five days a month behind the chair. Uh, I very much enjoy it, but the reason isn't to do clients' hair. The reason is to show young staff uh, that he, here's how you do it. So, you know, uh, I, it's not just do what I say, but if you do what I do, you'd probably be better off because it forces me to be disciplined. And I almost feel like I'm being videoed at all times by young staff when I'm on the floor and it forces you to make sure you don't cut corners. So it allows you to have the culture that you're trying to breed. And, you know, it's kind of been successful through the years that way. And I think the young staff has a different conversation with you. I think they listen to you differently when they know you quote one of them, not just the boss. That's powerful. It's, it's really powerful. So this next question I, I ask of all of our guests, and it's around advice. You just gave some brilliant advice. Um, but I want to know about the best advice that you've ever received professionally from someone and 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 why it might be relevant to our audience. Um, you know, I, I have a few that, I mean, not that I get asked this question often, but there's a few kind of, business principles that I I tend to keep in the forefront of my thinking when I'm making decisions. And obviously, they've been from different people through the years. But discipline, I think, is huge. I I really learned that training through the Vidal Sassoon organizations through the years, whether it be at the Davies Muse in London, whether it be Queen Street, whether it's uh, the New York Academy when it was on 57th, prior to it becoming a Paul Mitchell school. Now I'm talking mid-70s. But the one common denominator I seen through excellence of hairdressing back then was discipline and and doing it right the first time. You know, I've always said, and I tell my young staff now, you know, if you don't have time to do it right the first time, we're going to find time to fix it or do it right the second time. You know, so sometimes, you know, Yosh Toya, who's a dear friend of, of 
mine and Belinda's and and has been for many years a very distinguished Shinokofio member, very known worldwide in Japan. He's he's like the Videl Sassoon of of England in Japan, Yoshis. And I can remember Yoshi said very little words, but when he said something, they were very powerful. And he was cutting Belinda's hair uh, in his San Francisco Post Street Salon one time. And I, he, I was asking him about his technique because he had a, a specific technique, but it was based on the principle of work fast, move slow. And it sounds very Asian and or Japanese, if you would. But, you know, I learned a lot from that because even if you're moving fast and getting something done because you're an expert enough to be able to get it done fast, you, you don't rush through it. You don't you don't walk fast through your salon. You don't comb hair quickly. You don't twirl around brushes so fast that clients feel as though they're being rushed or an interview feels like they're being rushed. It, so the whole concept, I think, of, of moving slow, working fast was one really, really good piece for me. And, and a few others, number one that comes to the top of my head from a business standpoint, true leadership. And, and we tell our mid-management and upper management this all the time, that in the absence of standards, you still have standards. You know, there's a standard, whether you, whether it's desired or not, you have standards and, and you can't wiggle on what they are. You know, there's, there's certain principles that create your standard. Now, the activity around that principle might change, but the action might change, but you can't give up on the standard. So the, the, the linchpin to that is if you permit it, you promote it. And to me, that's, that's the best piece I've ever gotten because anytime I want to just wiggle or let something slide, my inner voice says, Frank, if you let that go, you're actually saying not only is it okay, you're promoting it to be okay because you weren't willing to stand up for the belief system or or the honor of the company's belief system to let somebody get away with something. So the young staff knows and they'll, uh, I'll know sometimes I'll say if you and they'll say if you permit it, you promote it. It's almost like it's common culture around here. And I really think it makes a difference of people holding people accountable to, to what your culture is. And our definition of culture is really, really simple. It's how we do things here. There's a million ways of doing something. And most of them could be right. I don't want to get in a right, wrong game. I just play the what works and what don't work for us game. And and if it's not inside our culture, it don't work for us. So when we, we let them know really clearly our definition of culture is how we do things here, whether it's Frank's Barbershop, whether it's Salon Massage, whether it's Spa Massage, you have to stand for something and then you got to hold the people accountable to those standards. That is so powerful. I I, I have to go back and and, and give a shout out, uh, give some props and, and honor Yoshitoya. Um, you know, I, I grew up at Pivot Point. In my early career, I was I was with Leo Passage for many years and he was my mentor and and one of my closest friends, kind of like my business father. And he and Yosh were buddies. They would go fishing together all the time, all over the world. They fished. And uh, Yosh, you know, I, I'm not a hairdresser and I've sat in hundreds of classes because of the work I do. And and I would always make a point to go sit in a Yosh, Yosh Toya class. I mean, his it was just so fascinating. You know, again, that kind of Zen approach to haircutting that, um, you know, I, I just appreciated the beauty of what he was doing. But my, my favorite Yosh story ever for me, I was, I was wandering the International Beauty Show in New York, uh, I don't know how, 10 years ago, probably. And um, that's our, our sister property. We're owned by the same parent company. Um, and um, I bump into Yosh on the floor. And I was like, Yosh, you know, uh, what are you up to? And I wasn't close to him, but I, I certainly do him. And he said, I'm looking at, I can't remember if he said scissors or shears. I know that's a, a he, I don't want to. probably said. 
He probably said shears. He probably did. <laughs> and he said, and he said, he said, I'm, I'm looking at shears. He said, come with me. And <laughs> I was, I wasn't going to say no. And um, so I was like, okay. So, and, and he <laughs> took me on a, on probably a 45 minute to an hour tour of the tabletops with the shears and explained them all to me. Oh. And uh, I, I was with a master. What did you, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, although you were a hair master, I bet you what, when you were in those classes, you weren't really in a hair class. You were in a life class, you know? I mean, the guy, the guy, the hairdressing was his vehicle to expand and grow and understand life. I mean, anytime I was around Yosh, I was just mesmerized by, by his thinking. Yes. I saw him. Do, I saw him do a class on face shape. Uh, we're off topic here, but I, I have to share this because with, with the hat, with the, the hat, with the uh, hats, the best man. The, that's the best. Explain it. Explain what he did. The short version. You know, he, yeah, he had a fedora hat. Like just put a hat on his head. And it looked like a guy cutting hair with a hat. But he says now, hat, hair is like a hat. It what adorns the top of the head. And so if I want my face to look longer, I wear my hat like this. And he tweaked the hat. And it made his face look longer. And he says, if I want my face to look wider, I'd wear my hat, which would be hair as a, as a metaphor. And he'd turn the hat and all of a sudden his face looked. He put the hat on six different ways. If I had a big nose and I wanted to draw attention away from the center of my face, I'd wear my hat like, and he put it on asymmetrical. And it was like in front of you, it was like what could be a great YouTube piece that would go viral. Yes. Today. And it was, you know? again, Zen, like, again, growing up at Pivot Point, education, teaching, Leo's approach to conception, the importance of concept behind doing. Um, I've seen so many presentations on face shape. And again, I'm not a hairdresser, so I, I'd listen. Oh, and I, nope. But I, I saw that and like all, all, all the switches went on. I was like, I get it. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. The, the, none would, I've never seen one as good as that one because it was... You didn't need to, to, his words backed up the action. They were, they were in sync. See, a lot of times when people are teaching, they're, they're using verbiage and you're trying to paint a picture with words and you're hoping the person listening can capture the photograph that you're trying to paint. In this case, they were both going on simultaneous, you know, and, and you talk about a shout out to Yosh, which I, I think it's quite kindly and certainly uh, deserved. I think the same shout out needs to go to Leo Passage. I fortunately uh, knew Leo and, and had the great honor uh, my year prior to my taking over presidency in a coiffure, I was uh, granted the Leo Passage Educator of the Year Award. And it, it was an honor being the Educator of the Year. But when I look at that uh, statue in my office and it says the Leo Passage Educator of the Year Award, it just kind of makes me feel good about knowing that I am even somewhat connected to who was a legend and a and a, and someone who was a true advocate for the welfare and and the forward movement of beauty. I, I spent ten years with him, you know, directly under his tutelage, and and you just had the great fortune to, to sit next to him through an awful lot. And um, I've said it every chance I get. I've said it on this podcast before. Um, he gave me my professional life and he changed my life. And, but more important to your point, he changed so many people's lives and he was such a good human being. And he had so much passion for what this industry is and, and, and really the art. He, he's the one who, as someone who doesn't do hair, you know, he allowed me to see this all differently, you know, and, and cause there is that fine art aspect of what is being done. And then there's the craft, you know, um, and then there's everything else. And um, he allowed me to see it, which was 
transformational for me as a non-hairdresser working the business side of beauty. And I, I had been doing it for 10 years before I joined him and, and what an amazing man. And, and, um, yeah, shout out to Leo. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that they, you know, he was a multi-dimensional world champion hairdresser and, and the story behind him, if anybody who's listening, uh, hasn't seen the movie, it, it's Leo Passage's story is, is one for the record books for humanity. Forget hairdressing. I mean, it's, it's a big, beautiful story. And uh, the first time I saw it, I thought it was absolutely amazing. So I call his son, Robert, who obviously is cut from the same cloth. Because, and, I, and the reason why he's cut from the same cloth is because I said, Robert, I absolutely love seeing your dad's story. I would like to have a few copies to give out as like a bonus at my first Intercroft event that I'll be hosting as president. And he, as, as a typical person in the hair industry would do, not only would they say yes, but he said, why just give a few? How many people are going to be there? I said, no, you can. I said, it's going to be 500. He said, there'll be 500 in a mail tomorrow. They should arrive in your office by Tuesday. And and that's 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 hairdressing. That's beauty. That's the Passage family. Uh, we're blessed to have so many people around us that, that are givers that way. And, you know, a lot of business people will talk about market share what it takes to own market, to be, to be market leader. And, and I think what hairdressers do is they talk about hot share. And when you talk about hot share and you perform hot share, you get all the market share you need. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great lesson. That's a great lesson. And last thing on Leo for this podcast, um, he took me to my first intercoiffure in 19, I want to say it was probably 87, 88. Um, introduced me to John Jay. Actually, he took me down to New Orleans to spend time with Jay more than a few times. But yeah, he took me to my first intercoiffure, which you are now the president of. So that's that's a cool little connection. Yeah, very nice. Thank you. So let's let's talk about um, Salon Visage. Um, I'm fascinated by by the story behind this. I want to share some of this because it's very atypical. First of all, you're not in a in a huge market, and yet you have a lot of individual. I mentioned all those brands; they're freestanding businesses in somewhat close proximity to one another. But talk through kind of the the short version of the history and some of the why from the business perspective, because it's it's a, it's a unique story. And then I want to I want you to end on Frank's Barbershop. Okay. Uh, well, that that kind of is the the newest piece of the brand, so that that would be very appropriate. Um, as far as Salon Visage, we opened Salon Visage on a seven thousand dollar loan. That after about twenty five no's, because I was broke as a joke, I had no credit. I was I was a hairdresser with like aubergine purple hair with earrings and. And, you know, it, it was actually, it was henna. It wasn't even hair color. So I had like purple henna. I had earrings in my ear. I was broke, but I was pretty talented. But the bank don't care, right? So I, I, I couldn't get any money. And at the time, my in-laws co-signed for me uh, for a $7,000 loan from a finance company that was at 29% interest and it was accrued daily. All right. So this is 1985. I probably got about four payments left on that loan uh, today. <laughs> but that was it, man. It was like that. That's what you had to do uh, to get started. I was able to find a little house in Knoxville uh, to, to refurbish my friend Sheila Wilson from uh, Memphis, who we've been very good friends. She's happens to be the first vice president of Inequap Yard now. So you talk about it going full circle. But she was remodeling a salon at the time and they were they were going to throw some furniture away. And I said, no, 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 I need it. I, that, I, I got seven grand, man, and I got to try to get open. And, you know, plumbing and electric will take all of it. So 
I went down to Memphis, Tennessee with a, a, a rent-a-truck, a U-Haul, and we put all her used equipment that they were going to throw away uh, and on a truck, and I drove back to Knoxville, and we set up shop. Uh, that, that's how we got started. I, I was only here a few months from New Jersey after moving. I had a pretty decent clientele. Fortunately, you know, my reputation was getting around. I was Sassoon trained, so I, I was doing some pretty progressive work, and it, the timing was really, really good. And, you know, after a while, I started training people, and we grew pretty quickly, and the magic really came when Belinda, Belinda's a hair colorist, and she wasn't working there. She was at another salon in the city. And then we wound up dating, and this was after uh, uh, my first marriage had, had ended, and I was single, and I met Belinda at the IBS beauty show in New York that you referred to earlier. And, and we happened to be from the same city. We were on the same plane, but didn't know each other and got to know each other. And there's a long story that we kind of knew each other because I, I only cut hair. And most of my clients were going to Huffa haircuts. And and uh, she had done both. And her clients were going to Huffa color, but they quit getting haircuts with her. And she kind of said, something's going on here. And there was this new guy in town. So we were connected from, from day one, whether we knew it or not. <laughs> so uh, she wound up joining uh, Salon Massage. And, and Belinda, you know, I think big. Belinda thinks huge. Uh, she she she's really a big thinker and a visionary. She's been kind of the visionary for this company with this whole all the brands you talk about, and uh, you know she'll 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 be a step ahead of it. Now what I'll do that it'll end on my lap to start calling attorneys and landlords and bankers to execute it. But uh, so that's kind of the dynamics we have, and and you know there's two ways of doing business. You you're either doing you're either where it's at as a brand. Or you're a step ahead in understanding where it's going, and I think we've always had the nose and desire to to know what's next, and that's sort of a big question in our company. Whenever we get together with management, is what's next? Now you have to take care of what's now, but if you're not paying attention to what's next, you know you're leaving yourself open to a competitor passing you by, and and I live with that. I live with the fact that I don't want to be caught asleep at the switch. I've seen it happen too many times to too many people, and you know you get a little comfortable, and you you know you get a little sort of settled in with thinking you you got this, and no sooner do you think you have it that you don't have it no more. So we're always looking at what it takes to what's next, what's next, what's next. So after the the, the salon, we had moved to another location, got a little bigger, still one salon. Then we opened the second, third, and fourth. So we had four salon massages. But what we found is we were compromising our belief system. We were compromising our quality because the infrastructure of the city didn't allow for four of the same brand at a high level. It's all mathematics, right? If you have X amount of people, you have X amount of those people that want top-notch services. You have X amount of those people that are going to come to your brand. It's it just, I mean, you can't change the way the math shakes out. So once we realized that we were going the wrong way and diluting down our vision, we, we wound up buying a piece of property and moving two of the salons under one roof. And that's the place I'm talking to you from right now. It's we were able to purchase the property and move two stores into it. And, and that was really where it became a serious company. And again, this was Belinda's vision at the time, because when, when we got together, I'd still be in that first little house I told you about. And I'd probably be happy as a clam just cutting hair there because I really don't want to take that kind of risk. You know, I'm, I'm very conservative and she's not at all. The magic became when we came under one roof and put all that energy together with a combined staff, with a combined clientele, 
And then we really, at that point, feel like we started running a, what you'd call a market leading salon. So many who are in the business today who are thinking of expansion underestimate the wear and tear on multiple occasions and spreading yourself thin. Well, that's exactly what happens. And, and, and I just had this conversation, Van Council, who's a dear friend of mine, he's the artistic director for Inquapior, uh, we talk very often. And he has six or seven stores in Atlanta, which are un- it could very well be, in my opinion, the most single best hair organization in America. Uh, I, I, it just blows me away every time I go there. And and again, these people are always not only where it's at, but where it's going. And that's the, and that is the the Van Michael Salon. That's the Van Michael Salons that are owned by Van Council and Michael Council, who are brothers, hence Van Michael. Uh, two, uh, we're talking about great people, great family, great parents, great children. It's just uh, we're talking great human beings overall. And it's an honor for me to call him friend. Uh, but we just had this conversation at the IBS last week in New York about locations. And he and I both said the same thing. We, outside the one brand I opened, which I'll talk about in a minute, every time we expanded, it was forced growth. And, and that's two words you got to keep together. Forced growth allows you to expand in a way that says, I kind of have to do this. A lot of times I see people do what we call ego growth. They'll get a second store because it's cool. They'll get a second store for for whatever reason. But if or or they'll add on to one, expand one, and they're really not even maximizing the space they're in. So they're not looking at percentage of occupancy. They're not looking at what the current brick and mortar can do versus what it is doing and how much inventory is left that's perishable that you should be selling instead of worrying about renting more space. So so with all that said, you know, I think when you force your growth. And you have to you have to move forward into another location. It's a it's a different reason. It's a different mindset, and it's certainly a lot less uh, chancy. I think when you have to do it that way. And I think you know, it's, it's, you made a comment about your your school days and your interest in math, and you're clearly an analytical thinker. Like you say, Belinda, you know, has all those those big thoughts and big ideas, and you clearly have this you know, this amazing partnership in business, you know, as well as life, but. We see so many come into the ownership side of the business, leaving often successful times behind the chair and struggling. And I'm always fascinated in what the personality types, what the, the history of the people are, um, who, who are the ones who are really killing it out there. And that understanding of math and numbers and, and interest in it, because so many people don't. And my advice is if you don't have interest in that, maybe you need to think again or find a business partner you know, who has that that side of the the thinking for your business? Well, it, it has to get done. So if it's not you and, and it's nothing wrong with it, not, you know, it's usually, and again, I'm i I'm a good hairdresser, but I'm not a great hairdresser. All right. Because actually my, my work was very calculated. It was very geometric. It was very uh, numerical if you would. Right. So I'm not, certainly not the most creative hairdresser, but the work's got to get done. You cannot run your business. And, and I'll give you a perfect example. The first few years we ran our business, I would have to wait until the year end to my accountant gave me a P&L statement. And as soon as I got it, the first thing I would do is turn to the last page, go to the bottom, and just hope there was no parentheses around the number. <laughs> All right? That's when I found out. That was my report card. Did I pass or fail? Well, I think maybe 30 years ago, you could do it that way. I probably shouldn't have because it was probably more luck than it was strategy. 
but you can't do that today. The overhead is dr- dramatically different. Sh- should we explain to any anybody new in the industry, any of our young listeners, that parentheses is a bad thing? Parentheses is is the devil uh, in <laughs> business because what what they mean for the listeners that might not be sure. That means it's a negative number <laughs> and. It could be, and if the parentheses aren't there, you just hope the color ink isn't red. Right. right? So there <laughs> yes. two things you don't want to see on a P&L statement. But now we, we flipped it. I mean, for no pun intended, we flipped our thinking upside down. We do what we call forced bottom line accounting. And a lot of Fortune 500 companies use the technique, and that's where we learned it from. And what, what I really try to do, and Belinda as well, when we look to move our business or shake it up, we try to go outside the beauty business and get the intellectual property that's been around for generations in serious businesses. When I say serious, when you, you, you get somebody like a, let's just say L'Oreal Worldwide, uh, billions of dollars, or, or just take one of their divisions, Clinique. Clinique runs on such a narrow margin that if it has a bad Christmas season, if the gift with purchase was, was, was the wrong gift, it, it could blow their whole year. Right, so you're running on really, really tight numbers and tight margins. Now, in 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 this business, if you're not a Wharton Business School graduate, it doesn't come natural. So I'm hoping I make money at the end of the year by just rolling up my sleeves and working hard. Well, the chances of you landing in a good spot are not good. All right. So what we do now is this whole forced bottom line accounting method is we dictate how much we're going to take out of every dollar that comes in and put it aside for profit or future growth. So you, if, you, if you're not making money, you can't do that yet. But the first order of business is the first line item we have as a monthly payment is our profit number. It's not, it's not negotiable. We treat it the same as if it was rent. And actually, we treat it before rent. Right? What we used to do, it used to be the last line, profit, yes or no. And we hope there was something left. Well, I could tell you right now, if you're running your feeling, if you're running your, your business on feelings and just making decisions based on instinct, there's not going to be profit left over because there's always something you need. There's always something you can and spend it on. There's always a new promotion. There's always a new tool. There's always a story out there, right? So just a quick example for those who are, have never heard the term forced bottom line accounting is... You have three groups of, of expenditures. You have your fixed overhead, you have your variables, right? And then you have what you hope is profit, which is a third. That's the only three. So to fix the fix, you can't change them. Uh, you, you can get in trouble with fixed. If, if you rent the wrong space and your rent's too high to begin with based on pricing, you can't cut and color your way out of a bad rent. So you could, you could not have a, a, a potential profit the day you open and you don't even know it yet. You just think you'll work hard. But math don't work that way. So what we did is we flipped that upside down. So our three categories work like this. It's profit first. It's fixed overhead second. And then it's variables. And the variables tell us whether we can or cannot spend something, whether it be on education, whether it be a photo shoot, whether it be a, a remodel, whether it be we want to go do anything that we don't have to do to run the business. And that's where people get caught in, in, in having a struggle in their business. And, you know, Edwin Neal, who, uh, from the Neal Corp, De- uh, Deborah and Edwin, uh, friends with Belinda and I, and, and uh, Edwin has passed. Uh, but one of the things we learned from Edwin before that was the three S's in business. There's, you have three S's that dictate where every one of us listening or talking right now are in one of those three stages. 
And the first S is survival. So when you first open your salon and, and you're working real, you won't do whatever it takes just to survive, right? So you might, you're not in a position to have forced bottom line accounting yet. You're just trying to keep the lights on and sort of let the dust settle. But that second S of state and stage of business is success. It means you're paying the lights and now there's some extra money. And it's the most dangerous place to be in a business because we think we're there. We think we've arrived. What we want to do is get into the third S, and that's sustainable. You want to know the, the, the financials are sustainable in advance. So we know what we're going to make this year. Right now, we're in month three. We're getting ready to end the first queue. We're right on target for the amount of profit that we dictated to ourselves that we want to make based on last year's sales. We always use last year's numbers uh, as the, the guideline, all right? So for instance, I might say 5, 5%. On a big number, 5% could be a, a, a good number, right? There's not a lot of salons that are making 12, 15%. Fortunately, we're in double digits, but, and I'm just using it as an example. So let's say 10 for the average person. You're taking 10 cents out of every dollar and you're putting it aside and you're paying this bill called profit, that's a savings account. Now you have to figure out how to run the business on the 90. If you leave all that money in the kitty and run it on the 100, there's no way there's going to be 10 points left over at the end of the year. So again, discipline. And I, I, I want to take that again because we've got a very diverse audience and we've got, a, we've got some independents out there. We've got some young stylists, some commission employees. But everything you just said, when I, when I think about the individual, and it reminds me of, of, of lessons taught over the years by our good friend Michael Cole, but your forced profit to me for the individual is the idea of forced savings. I remember when Michael used to teach 20 years ago to put your tips in the bank. First thing, do not put your tips in the pocket. Put your tips in the bank and, and create those savings. So someday you can buy a home or retire or buy a business, but force yourself to do that. And then your whole survival, success, and sustainability, if you apply that to your career, you know, think about being that young hairdresser who's in survival mode, who's just making enough to get by, waiting to get to forced savings, you know, and then, and then, and then to get to that success. And I, I think the same is true for an individual as it is for a business. It's a dangerous time. People get cocky. I've talked to my children about doing this with, I mean, you know, they're not in this business, all of them. I mean, our oldest son, Jared, cuts hair at the barbershop. Uh, our oldest daughter, Brittany, is my assistant to Inner Coiffure. But the three others aren't in the beauty business, not yet. <laughs> but I talked to them about their finance. I talked to them when they get their birthday money to have a forced bottom line to your savings account. It's the same th because, you know, it's easy. You get 100 bucks when you're nine years old. You go buy a $100 gift. Well, why don't we go buy something that's $80 and put 20 in the bank and start training the thought process? You know, it's, it's just basic financial principles. But it sounds basic, but it's pretty advanced to execute. It is, and the average and the average person doesn't think about it. And we we those of us who travel around the industry and and get up in front of crowds and, and meet so many people, we know how stressed business owners and, and individuals are in their careers because of the dollars and and sense of their lives and what maybe they don't understand and what they're not doing. So this is brilliant. There's something for everybody in in what you just talked about. You mentioned the barbershop again. So we got to talk about the barbershop, Frank's barbershop. Uh, there's a great story. I know it. And uh, I want you to share it. Well, uh, you know, this, this parts of it, you don't even know yet. That's, I'm really excited to tell you because we just talked about forced growth. Well, last Friday, Belinda and I fortunate enough to where we bought a piece of property right next to the other piece of property I told you we bought, and we're getting ready to do a second Frank's Barbershop based on having to. And I say having to is I was down in the barbershop last Friday, and 
we had a great day. We did 217 clients, but it was a terrible day because we turned away 41. And a lot of people would say, wow, that's amazing I'm, that you were so busy. That's great you turned away 41. Well, the day we opened those doors, I would have killed to do 41, <laughs> right? So, and then the next day we turned away 39. Wow. How many years ago did Frank's Barbershop open? Frank's Barbershop is in year seven at the moment. And it was, again, it was knowing where things were going. You know, life kind of gives you clues. Uh, the fashion magazines give you clues. Really smart people in the industry give you. When you hear something being kind of repeated and a lot of people, there's clues of what's happening. When we saw that barbershop, sort of sounded like it was kind of a cute little kind of throwback making its way back. Being a barber myself, I knew there was way more to it than that because I saw for years men would would come into our salons and they get a great haircut. But you could tell the average guy felt like, you know, he was in his wife's salon. He didn't feel like he was in a place he was comfortable in. He, he was in his wife's salon. <laughs> he was. That's exactly right. Right. He knew it. And I'd see the guy out. I mean, first of all, they walk in and they could be a hot shot in their own like office world. They walk in there and they're like a deer in headlights, man. Like what is going on? You got all these great looking girls with tattoos and piercings. And this guy said, I'm supposed to get my haircut here. Gets a great haircut, but the comfort piece was missing. So we opened Frank's Barbershop seven years ago. And what's uh, the place I told you I worked in when I was 13 shining shoes was Jay Vito's Continental Barbershop in West New York, New Jersey. And we almost duplicated that place over. I mean, that was the intention was, uh, it was a comfort zone for me. But to be honest, there was a little bit of excitement to kind of go back to where you came from. And that's what we did. We we, we upped the game a little. He used, to, he used to have like a little card table in there where people would play card games while, while they were waiting for their next haircut. But we put pool table, dartboard. Uh, we, we did frozen mugs of root beer. We don't serve alcohol. I don't want alcohol in the place. Uh, and I say that because I just think it gets away from the craft of what we're there for. And then guys, you know, they have one or two or three and then they kind of act loose. I just didn't want all that. So uh, Frank's Barbershop opened and we went back to doing retro haircuts, man. We were doing clippers, uh, you know, but it was obviously with a twist because some of the work is very new. And then it wasn't a year later, the guys from Rotterdam, the the, you know, uh, Scrum Barbers became like the big hit of what's going on in Europe. And I was actually met with those guys uh, about a year after that. We met at the Midwest Beauty Show and they're the nicest guys. They're funny as heck, but they really created a global awareness of this whole return of the barbershop, but with a twist. You know, I think anytime you bring something back, it better have something new to it. So we've created Frank's Barbershop here in Knoxville. And it's really kind of a place where People, it's much more experiential than it is just the old barbershop. Dads will come with their kids. They'll play pool. They'll be throwing darts. Uh, you'll get guys with pickup trucks. You'll get Maseratis. You, you get a wide span of who your potential consumer is because it's a guy's joint, right? And, and it, it's not pretentious. It, I think the key word is barbershop versus men's salon versus grooming lounge. And I think if you do those, there's nothing wrong with it. But you're going to attract the Uber Metro guy. You're not going to get the average Joe. Well, if you do what we, we're doing, we did the average Joe on steroids as far as a location, and we're getting the Uber Metro and average guys. So in a small town, and that was very intentional, 
because we're in a town of a half a million people. I can't just count on the sliver of the Uber guys only and do 25 haircuts a day and keep my lights on. So we have we have to become more things to more people when we're going after a, a brand in this city. And that's how we got to so many different brands versus multiple locations. And, you know, you talked about signs and signals earlier and um, men's grooming, barbering, it, it, the online space, it has completely blown up. You talked about the score and barbers, you know, Berta Celine. Um, what's happened in that space is, is um, so much of it you can trace back to social media. You were ahead of that curve, I would say, as so many leaders are. But we see like a, a, a big explosion in the male marketplace generally. And definitely people are being drawn to that experience that you're offering. Um, I, I, you know, I grew up in, in New Jersey as a, as a kid, at least up until I was 12. And I never did. I didn't yeah, know that. Long Branch, Long Branch, New Jersey. <laughs> Jersey boy. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, uh, uh, but I, once a week, my dad took me to Vinny the Barber. And uh-huh. he got his haircut. Uh, I, I didn't qualify for a weekly haircut, um, but um, they were nice enough to give me the the vibrating the, the vibrating machine on the head thing. Do you remember yeah. that? Uh, what oh, is the, it? The hand goes inside. Yes. It. Oh yeah. That was the, use, that was the best we thing ever. Still, we still what we use now at the barbershop. We do a a shoulder massage with a very kind of large. It almost looks like a sander, a handheld sander, and do we do a shoulder massage with a with this massage machine prior to getting your first shampoo, because we do two shampoos. We do pre-haircut and post-haircut shampoo at the barbershop. And that's where the experiential piece comes in. And also the branding piece to where everybody's getting the same rituals from start to finish. Now, it might not be the same haircut, but at the end of the day, they've come into your brand and are experience X, as opposed to Vinny the barber does it one way, Giuseppe the barber does it another, then you pick either Giuseppe or Vinny. Well, as a salon owner or a barbershop owner, what you'd like to do is come over and take either Giuseppe or Vinny, who's ever available. That this this way, your you know your brand is a little bit stronger based on product versus personality. I'm going to switch gears and, and talk about another love in your life, and that's your work in the association space. And again, I as when we started this, I said you're a power networker, and I know a lot of your networking, I think, over the entire life of your career was anchored in an organization called Intercoiffure, and you are the current president of Intercoiffure America Canada. And um, so tell us what's going on with Intercoiffure. Give us a short definition for those who might not know it and um, and your vision as president. Okay. Well, just for those of you who might be hearing the name Intercoiffure for the first time, it's an organization for salon owners and hairdressers worldwide. It's in 56 countries. Its home base is in Paris, and it's the best of the best. And I say that humbly uh, because it's not a place you can just write a check and join. You have to be invited by a current member and you have to also then be sponsored by two members locally from your area uh, to be able to be considered a member. So not to be snobby, but to be particular is why it's that way. Um, and we get together twice a year uh, and and share ideas and share information. It's a very safe place because in order to stay a member there, you got to have all the ethics it takes to uh make sure that you're honoring the profession. We just had a, a ex-employee from Knoxville who worked for Belinda and I. As a matter of fact, she was our artistic director for many years here. And she went and opened her own salon. And she did it right. She went and opened. She told us herself. She uh, told us what her intentions were. She told us she wouldn't take any staff. She wouldn't solicit or call any staff. That she just wanted to go give it a shot and try, her, try it her way. 
and we blessed it. We we were friends through through it, and I just sponsored her for Nicoffier because she had the the ethics piece to want to be a world class leader, and that's really what Nicoffier is. But when Belinda and I first joined, we joined in 1988, and when you said 88 before uh, with Leo and John Jay and that that we were just cutting our teeth as as owners, but we did have the standard of doing things right. And we got to meet the best of the best. I mean, it, it was, I, I can remember going to Nicaragua being a nervous wreck, talking to Horst and talking to John Paul and, you know, meeting all these people. And man, we would leave with so much knowledge and intellectual property, just hearing these people talk on stage and or, you know, even over dinner, just getting to, to meet them and hang out with them. So Inacofio, in my opinion, is the premier organization that has elevated headdressing. Uh, Vidal Sassoon was a member of Inacofio. Um, he sponsored some of our friends. Uh, Don Shaw out of Atlanta, who was our fashion director for many years, was sponsored by Vidal Sassoon. And it's, it's just that place where if it was music, it would be the... Paul McCartney's and the Eric Clapton's and the John Lennon's hanging out, talking about their industry to make everybody better and elevate it together. And that's kind of the short version of what Interquafure is. It's a good thing. And uh, the organization is fortunate to have such a committed member and somebody who's been there for so long and knows the history and knows the traditions and yet has a forward vision for the organization. I'm, I'm very excited for Interquafure and I'm very excited for you. Well, I thank you for the kind words, Gordon, on that. And certainly, you know, your support, you pulled me over day one, said, whatever you need, let me know. And, and some others were kind enough to do it, although you did it first. Uh, the, the it's it's interesting how no matter who I've reached out for or to in this industry, I'd say, hey, I need your help. You talked about DJ Muldoon before. Uh, you know, he he's going to be teaching at the Boca a seminar coming up. You know, you, you, I, I called Van Council. I said, Van, I'd love for you to be the author. You got it. I called uh, Candy Shaw, who is an amazing uh, entrepreneur and, and person in general, uh, to be my membership committee, but you got it. I called Charles Penzone. I said, Charles, we need a new treasurer. You got it. I mean, I've heard more people tell me you got it without even asking much. And it's just, it's such an honor to to be around those people. And, and I don't really feel like I'm serving them as the president. I feel like I, I get to hang out with them because I'm the president. And, and, and that attitude is a, a huge part of your success. So it's, it's uh, again, it's, it's wonderful to see what you're up to in the leadership and, and where you're taking this important organization. So so we're going to begin to wrap up. I, I can't believe the time has gone by so fast. I feel like we need a two or three parter. Share with our audience what you might be reading, listening to, viewing, and or obsessing about today that you think would be a benefit to them? You know, we're getting to a point now, this is my 45th year in the beauty business. And I feel like I have a huge responsibility to improve other people's lives because we've had such a, I mean, it's been a dream for me from the beginning of being in the beauty business. I've got to see things, see parts of the world, uh, events and whatnot that are beyond anything I've ever dreamed of. So my responsibility now is, is you know, how do I lead my family and how do I lead my lead my organization? And that's hanging around with people smarter than me, asking a lot of questions, and just trying to make sure that I stay focused and and directed into just betterment in general. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for that. And thanks for being here with us. Tell us how our audience can find you online, on Facebook, or however. How can people find Frank Gambuza? 
you know, I don't even, it's Frank Gambuza. I know my Instagram and Facebook is that. I'm not big with it. Our organization is. We have a full-time social media manager that, that does a lot of stuff. But it's Salon Visage, Knoxville, Tennessee. It's uh, franksbarbershop.net if you want to go look at the site. And my email is frank at salonvisage.com. And I'll be glad to return any emails I get because it's just always an honor to hear from peers, whether it be somebody that's in the business one day, one decade, or 40 years. doesn't matter to me. We're all one, and it's our responsibility to help each other out. Frank, I knew this was going to be an amazing conversation. You, you just have so much knowledge. Every time I'm in front of you, whether it's private or whether it's in a classroom or you're up there teaching, I, I walk away with so much good stuff, and, and we've done it again today. So um, thanks for being our guest on American Salon Stories, the podcast. It's a pleasure. I'm going to see you in what I probably will see you at ABS this weekend, the America's Beauty Show in Chicago. Um, I don't know if you're going to be here, but I know I'm going to see you a week and a half from now at Intercoiffure in Boca. Well, I'll be at both. I'll be I'll be sitting on a panel for Intercoiffure in Chicago, uh, doing a piece on finance, and then I'll be in Boca trying to bring the next best beauty piece to hairdressers worldwide. Fantastic. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you, Gordon. And we'll be back next week with another American Salon Stories podcast. In the meantime, we hope you'll follow us on Instagram, where we are known as at American underscore salon, also at facebook.com forward slash American Salon. That's all one word. And of course, on americansalon.com, where you can also subscribe to our free newsletter, Your Daily Beauty Fix. This is American Salon publisher, Gordon Miller, and I can't wait to bring you more American Salon Stories next week. 